Well, we have spent some time doing the mental exercise of how do we sort of look at the Word of God and piece it apart, and we're going to pick that back up in our next workshop. But we're breaking right now to do general session two. You should see that in your workshop materials. General session two, we're going to talk about the call in God's Word to be people who not only study the Scriptures, but use the Scriptures to teach others about the good news of Jesus Christ. Um, so I want you to sit back and... Um, this is a more reflective session, sort of like our one last night. We're going to reflect on what God's Word calls us to as women rooted in the Scriptures, as women who build our lives on only one foundation, and that's the foundation of the Word of God. And so we'll take a mental break and sort of let the stuff that we're learning in the workshop sort of run in the background, sort of sit on simmer, um, on the back burner, if you will, and we're going to look at what God's Word says to us about using the Scriptures. Um, before we do, I'd love to pray for us. Um, we're going to be spending some time in the Word of God, and we're going to hear um, from, I'm going to share a bit of my testimony, and I'm going to ask um, some of you to share some things with us as well. And so before we do, let's ask that the Spirit would be with us and bless our time as we look at His Word and hear from each other. Lord, this is Your Word, and we are just grateful recipients. Um, Lord, as we talk about being women who use the scriptures wisely, who teach the word to other people, would you give us a grasp of the value of your word, of the height of the calling that you've called us to, to be people who share the good news of Jesus? Would you grasp our hearts with this calling um, and empower us by your spirit to lean into it? We pray it all in the name of Christ. Amen. I became a Bible teacher when I was fairly young. The first time I was asked to teach a Bible study or to teach a, um, at a women's conference, I was 17. The first time I was asked to teach a conference like this, a women's breakfast, I still remember, I was asked to come speak at a local church's women's breakfast. And I was 17 years old, and I literally showed up. I had not been to a women's breakfast, because I wasn't in the women's ministry. I was in the youth group, y'all. And so I hadn't been to a women's breakfast, so I showed up that morning to teach the Bible. I was very, very nervous. And I was also wearing tennis shoes and jeans, because I just didn't know what women's breakfast even looked like. You know, when you're in high school, breakfast looks a lot like a big breakfast plate at a diner, you know, with your youth leader and your hoodie and your sweatpants and your tennis shoes. And so I showed up to teach in these sweatpants and jeans, and the sweet women that were there were so encouraging and so empowering. And after it, it was the first time I'd, asked, I'd been asked to teach this lesson for about 25 minutes on the woman at the well and what does it mean to satisfy spiritual thirst. And I was 17, so my message was probably terrible. Thank God we weren't recording back then. When I was 17, they weren't recording. There was no live streaming, and there was no Facebook Live. By the good grace of God, none of that happened, because I'm sure I would listen to it and be like, that was not right. You were not correct, and it wasn't good teaching. But afterwards, um, you know, because I had been asked to share. That was the language that was used of it. I was asked to share from John chapter 4 on the woman at the well. And afterwards, I got done, and this older woman in the community said, thank you for being our Bible teacher today. And I was so confused because I had never thought of myself as a Bible teacher. I had never thought that what I was doing was teaching the scriptures. I had never thought that what I was doing when I presented the word of God to a group of women, I wasn't thinking about it as teaching. Teaching seemed so vocational. It seemed so academic. It seemed so like something reserved for the elite. 
for those um, professors in classrooms that seemed so reserved for those sterile situations that what I was doing, sharing with a group of women from the Word of God, I wasn't a teacher. I was just giving witness to God's Word. I was just bearing testimony to what God had done in my life through a particular text. But she was right. She was more right than I knew at the time. I was teaching the Word of God. And when the Lord brought me along in the process of understanding what it meant, convincing me that what I was doing was Bible teaching, then I felt the weight of it. Where I thought I was sharing, where I thought I was encouraging, where I thought I was giving a testimony, the Lord revealed to me that what I was doing was teaching. And he also revealed to me the weight of that responsibility to do that well. When you and I think of Bible teaching, many of us are going to think about what I'm doing today, teaching, the sort of formal, I have the microphone, you don't have the microphone, I'm standing up here, you're sitting down there. I mean, some of us are going to think only in formal terms. But the truth is, is that when our kids ask us, what does it mean when the Bible says this, and we give them an answer, whether we're in our sweatpants and our hair is in a messy bun and we haven't had our coffee yet, the answer we give is teaching the Bible. And when our neighbor says, hey, I know that you go to church and I've had this question, do you think I could ask you about it? And they ask things like, how can God be good but there's suffering in the world? How can I look at this, some of these global crises, and also, you believe that God is kind? The answer that you give on the sidewalk in the middle of a Tuesday as your kid colors with chalk and your other kid rides a roller skate on their roller skates across the driveway, the answer that you give is teaching. We are teaching the Bible as we share the good news of the gospel with other people. And so we want to be women who do that well. If we are going to be teachers, the question isn't whether or not we're teaching the word. The question genuinely isn't whether or not we are teachers of the Bible. The question is, have we been equipped to do that well? And have we taken the time to lean into God's calling of women who know how to study the scriptures and use them in effectively sharing the good news of the gospel with other people? And so we are going to spend some time in the word of God this morning. I want us to consider what it looks like to be women who have learned the gospel from someone and who also be women who share it with others. And we're going to be spending our time in John chapter 4. It seems only appropriate that when we talk about teaching the Bible, that we talk about it from John chapter 4, because that is how my whole story started. That's when I realized that I was um, a Bible teacher and felt the weight of that calling. So we're going to be looking at John chapter 4. But before we do, um, I want to share with you a little bit of my story. You guys know some of the factual information about me. I went to Moody Bible Institute with... Emily and Brian, and then I went on to Gordon-Conwell. My husband and I met there and were church planters. Yada, yada, you know some of the factual information. But I want to tell you about two women who taught me the word. And if I told them, um, which actually I have since, since I started teaching this seminar, I've told them since that I use them as illustrations. But if I were to tell them that they are the two women who were the primary Bible teachers in my life, both of them would say, no way. They would say, no way. I wasn't a teacher. I was just faithful to do the thing God put in front of me. But they are two women who taught me the scriptures, who taught me about God. And I want to tell you about both of them um, this morning. And as I tell you, I want you to think about 
a woman in your life who has testified to the goodness of the word of God, who has taught you to be faithful to the scriptures, who has taught you what it meant to be a woman who loves the word and lives it out, I want you to be thinking about somebody in your life who has done that. And then after I share my story about these two women, I want to ask four of you to share about the person who taught you the scriptures, who taught you to live and love the word of God. Okay, so I'm going to share, and as you do, think about it, and maybe with boldness, consider a little, you know, bit of courage, and share with the group, just for one minute or two minutes, the person that God used to point you to himself. The first person that comes to mind is my mom. And if you met my mom, she is a force to be reckoned with. I am one of nine children. I am the second. She homeschooled all of us through middle school. And, I mean, she runs a tight ship. You meet this woman, and she is a short five foot two, and you will not mess with her. I mean, the woman is solid muscle physically, and she is just a powerhouse of a person. And her and I share a lot in similarities of personality. We're both very blunt. We're both very forward. We're both very leadership-oriented. Um, but there are places in our lives that those personality similarities seriously diverge. She is very much about order and things being exactly how they should be, which, I, I mean, the Lord has worked on her in that area because she has nine children. So, um, think, you know, order comes at a cost when you have nine children. And so, but she loves things to be very orderly and very much in their proper place and that sort of thing. And I'm much more free-spirited. My husband, um, <laughs> my husband folds everything, every piece of his laundry. He folds his socks. He folds his underwear. He folds his pants. He folds his belts. He folds his hat. I mean, everything is folded. And I'm sort of like, you know, I'm like, these are my workout clothes. And they go in this general direction. So I'm much more free-flowing. And so my mom and I, when I was growing up, had this pretty divergent personality path. But I remember the day that my mom first told me about heaven. She told me about the place that we can go when we die. It was in very simple terms. I was very young. And it was sort of this brief explanation of, well, how, how do you get to heaven? I know I want to go there when I die, so how do you get there? And my mom shared the gospel with me probably for the umpteenth time. It wasn't the first time she explained the gospel to me, but that was the day I gave my life to Christ. I prayed with her on our old, worn-out gray couch and accepted Christ as my personal savior as much as that young mind could grasp my need of a savior and as much as my mind could give my heart and life over to Christ, I did that day. My mom led me in that, in that process. And then throughout our lives, in my life of being much more free-flowing and artistic, my mom helped me understand why God calls us to live in certain ways. My mom's love of order doesn't stop with wanting an organized house and wanting to be minimalistic in her approach to um, what's on the counter and what's in the living room and that sort of thing. But she also shared with me from the Word of God how God calls us to live ordered lives that are directed by the Word of God. She taught me that we don't just live our lives on our own terms. We don't just do what we want now that we have this ticket into heaven. That's not the good news of the gospel, but she taught me that God has called us into something. It's into living according to the pattern that God has set out in his word. It was her love of order that taught me and helped me understand God's love of calling us to follow his commands and seeing us walk in an orderly fashion specifically towards unbelievers. That's how the word of God talks about walking in order according to God's ways. My mom didn't do this by standing up in a podium. She didn't do this by teaching me through a Bible study. She did this in her everyday life as she studied the word, as she 
poured over the word in prayer and she poured over her kids in prayer and then daily occurrences would say, hey, we don't do that because God's word says this. Hey, we don't behave that way because God's word says this. She was my first Bible teacher and she wielded her influence in my life in a way that changed my life forever. Changed my life forever. I would not be a Bible teacher today if it wasn't for her influence and teaching in my life. And then the second woman that the Lord brought into my life that absolutely changed everything for me according to, you know, drew me into a love of the Word of God. Her name is Chris. And Chris was a sweet woman, in, I think she was in her mid-50s at the time, um, who started a Bible study for the, girl, the high school girls in her church. I didn't go to her church. Um, but the high school girls in her church, and our church didn't have a Bible study at the time. It was small. We didn't have a high school girls Bible study, and so she invited me to come along. And over the course of time, all the other girls from her church dropped out. And so she had been sort of assigned this high school girls Bible study. And now as a person in ministry, I'm like, why didn't she just call it quits? I wasn't even going to her church. But every Tuesday night, we would sit at her kitchen countertop, each with a can of Fresca, and we would study the Word of God. Every Tuesday night, like clockwork, 7 to 9, 7 to 9, 7 to 9 on Tuesday nights. I would come right from swim practice, or I would come right from theater practice, or I would come right from piano lessons, whatever it was. I would show up to her house, usually a wreck, with my Bible. She'd open me a can of Fresca, and we'd sit there for two hours studying the Word of God. Chris wasn't a woman, she still isn't to this day, a woman who will ever be handed a microphone. Not ever, not over her dead body. She's a quiet spirit. She does not want attention. She does not want accolades. But she taught me to love the word of God. Specifically, she asked hard questions. We would study the book of Mark, and she had some serious questions about what the unforgivable sin is that Jesus talks about. She had some very serious questions about what does this mean? But that was the first time as she voiced her questions, it told me it's okay to have questions of the text. And as she looked for answers, it taught me to lean into the questions that we have in the word of God. She never thought of herself as a Bible teacher. Never, not once. But she taught me to love the Word of God by modeling it for me and by encouraging me in it. So these two women, Laura, my mom, and Chris, my mentor through high school, these two women in very ordinary ways, in very everyday kind of circumstances, taught me to be a woman rooted in the Word of God. It wasn't something flashy, something fun. It wasn't something um, impressive or amazing that they did. But it changed my entire life. It made me a woman who craved the word of God, who learned how to live it out in my own life. And it changed everything for me. Though they would never have called themselves Bible teachers at the time. That's what they were. They were teaching me the word of God in these everyday kinds of ways as they wielded their influence that God had given them in my life to give him glory and to point me towards the word. So I want to hear from some of you, what are, who is a woman who has pointed you to the Word of God. Just one minute to two minutes, not long. And actually, can we turn on one of these mics again? I'm sorry I didn't tell you about this beforehand. Uh, always setting our sound team up for success. Um, is there somebody who would like to share about a woman who has influenced their life and made, pointed you to Christ and to the love of his Word? Yeah. Can you come grab the microphone? I have a limited range with this microphone, so if I t I'm like, I feel a little bit like, if I take go too far, I'm going to start screeching. Would you? That would be great. All right. Okay. Um, um, so yeah, in uh, my first year of college, I had a weird kind of first year. It was really unsettling. Um, but I met a lady over um, a random mission trip that I went on, and um, she worked at the church. Her name was Becky, and I uh, 
one day was driving by the church, and I was like, I'm just going to drop in and say hello, and uh, I started talking to her. I was just kind of lamenting that I didn't really have any accountability with my friends for, like, Bible study and stuff like that, and she just recognized a cry for help, and she was like, well, do you want me to keep you accountable? And I was like, uh, I, I'm not trying to, like, take up all your time, lady. <laughs> um, but she just was just like, here's my life. Like, I will be happy to meet with you. And she, for, I think, three and a half years, we met every week. Um, we just picked different studies um, that we did together. And she let me come over to her house and just let me come along. And this is how I minister to people. This is how, you know, I pray and um it, was, it didn't feel formal to me. I mean, it may, it may sound formal to people, but it was really just like, I'm living my life, and you're welcome to be a part of it. And um, yeah, it just, it was just, yeah, a, and what a was really her name? special. Her name was Becky. Becky, thank you. So, yeah. Hey, thank you for sharing. I'd love three other people to share, if we've got three more brave people. Um, the church I used to attend to attend in New Jersey, um, their pastors, pastor and his wife would um, have open their home to Bible studies for the young professional age group um, that most of whom were not married yet, didn't have kids, so it was a very transient group. But they took them under their wing, and uh, just seeing their hospitality and their care for each of us was was very precious for a a group of people oftentimes get forgotten. So um, the, Jen was um, the pastor's wife, and she was like a second mom to me and to all of mm. us, really. She, she told us hard things. Um, she lived out what she talked about. She um, repented um, when she was convicted, and it was just a very real relationship she had with God. She told me some hard things that um, she saw that I needed to change, and she was right. She was dead on. Um, it just, I needed to think about it and realize it. And um, I used to house it for them. And at one time, I, her journal was sitting out on the table and I peeked in it. And wow, it, like she didn't have it hidden away. It was right out there on the table. I had no idea what it was, but I, <laughs> I, I hope she forgives me for looking. But it was so sweet to read her personal thoughts and mm. her prayers to the Lord for her children and for her husband and for um, her family. It was, it was a look into um, a, a pure heart. And it, mm. just reading those words, I think, um, helped me uh, value honesty and, um, and even journaling and being real with God. <laughs> so right. that was Thank a big influence. You. This is um, a little bit similar to yours, but um, I would say the uh, woman who has most impacted my life in terms of encouraging me to be serious about the word is my mother. Um, I'm the fourth of eight children, um, so I got to see. I, I've gotten to see how she's dealt with, you know, my older siblings, my younger siblings, the, the progression and parenting-wise, and. And the common thread that I always noticed was just how much and how consistently my mother spent in the spends in the word um, every morning and often every evening, like clockwork. I'll come home or I'll come downstairs and she'll be sitting in her chair with the lap on and and a cup of tea over um, 
uh, by her side with her Bible open on her lap, and it's it's become somewhat iconic for me. But mm. um, I, I guess it helped me to take seriously our devotions, my uh, my time with the Lord. Um, I want, I aspire to be like her. I aspire to have the organized, the the, the more quiet life. The, 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 not the quiet life, the, the almost the calmness that she has in every situation, um, regardless of how hectic it becomes. Because um, I get all emotional and mood swings and um, flying all over the place, but I see how much her life is anchored in the Lord just by that example of the sheer amount of time she spends quietly reading the Bible and praying. Um, I guess That's great. it, it always moves me. What's her name? Lisa. Lisa is your mom? Yes. Great. Thank you. One more. Our fourth brave soul. Hi. Um, <laughs> that was so loud. Um, the lady who shared a lot with me when I was a freshman in college, her name was Christy. I was not a believer at the time, and I thought I was. I was very prideful, um, and she was so faithful. She led a... Bible study with my sorority, so it was kind of whoever would show up on a Tuesday night, Wednesday night, that sort of thing, and I was very prideful of, I know all these answers, I grew up in the church, why are you questioning me with these things, um, but seeing her faith and seeing how that looked different than mine really started allowing me to ask those questions about why does my faith look different, like why does my life look different, what does she have that I don't have in this faith, so... Um, a couple of years later, I came to faith, and um, she was like a huge part of that, which was really neat. That's great. Thank you. Um, I love to think of these women. So for me, Chris and my mom, Laura, Lisa and Jen and Becky, and these women standing behind us as people who, on whose shoulders we sort of stand in the faith. I mean, they're women who like really came behind us and like steadied us in our walk with the Lord. And when I think about my mom and I think about Chris, I know more of my mom's story, but I know that there were women who stood behind her, women who taught her the scriptures. For her, it was a woman in college, just like your story. She was a freshman. She didn't know the Lord, and she grew up in a Lutheran home where she thought she, she, thought she had a relationship with God or she thought that she was a believer, and she had a lot of confidence in that, but then started watching other believers and realizing God wants more for me than this. You know, God wants more, and a woman took her under her wing and discipled her and taught her to study the scriptures and really encouraged her into spiritual life and fruitfulness. And behind that woman, that woman who I don't know, stands another person who taught her the scriptures, who taught her to be a woman founded on the word of God alone. And behind that woman is another woman. And I just think about all these women, your mom standing behind you and um, Becky, stand, I mean, think of all these women, and if we all stood here and pictured the women standing behind us, what a legacy of faith is set out for us. Picture all of the women standing behind you and the women who stood behind them and the people in ministry and the lay ministers that taught them the word, the people who just said, come on over while I'm doing laundry and fixing the di kids' dinner and stuff like that, and let's talk about these spiritual things. Think about what a legacy of faith that is. And none of them did this. None of them did this Bible teaching in a way that was flashy or outstanding or 
even that formal, but they did it through ordinary, everyday ways of faithfulness to the scriptures and making themselves available to God's use in our lives. That changes the world, friends. That is how God is building his kingdom, through people who say, Lord, everything that I have is available to you, all for the sake of the gospel. And so I want us to look, in the last few minutes that we're going to spend in this session specifically, I want us to look at a woman who did this. We're going to look at John chapter 4. We're going to talk a little bit about her um, story and how God brings her to the place that she is. Now, the woman at the well is a woman that many of us have heard of before. Um, Many of us have heard who she is. We know a little bit about her. But I want to retell her story to us this morning as we think about what it means to be women who teach the Bible and who do who respond to that call of God to use our lives as faithful witnesses to the word of God and to the person of Christ well. So look at with me in John chapter 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, being wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Jesus is traveling from ministry in Judea to ministry in Galilee, which necessitated a long, long by-foot journey between the two places. And I don't know about you, as a person who is in ministry, I can't imagine how wearisome that would be. You know, we've only been church planters for about two months, and girl wants a nap. Like, I mean, Jesus had to be tired, and I didn't come here on foot. I came here in a car, but Jesus was traveling from ministry in Galilee to ministry, or ministry in Judea to ministry in Galilee, which necessitated this long journey between. And if you and I were to look at a map, we would see many different routes between the two places many different shorter routes than passing through Samaria. Jesus could have picked a different path. He could have picked an easier road, but the text tells us that he had to pass through Samaria. He had to. There was a divine appointment waiting for him there. He was compelled by the Spirit of God to pass through Samaria. He had to. And so Jesus arrives at a well. It's the middle of the day. The sun is hot. It's straight up ahead. That's why why they called it the sixth hour. It was right ahead of them. It's bright. The sun is shining. It is noon, the middle of the day. And Jesus comes to a well and rests his aching bones by it. And the text tells us this in verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Here comes a woman from Samaria. Now, we need to know something about what it means to be a Samaritan in this day. Samaritans were half Jews and half Gentiles. When the nation of Israel was scattered, they were scattered to several, they were sent into exile into several different nations. God gave them a command. He said, don't marry with those who don't follow my ways there. He said, don't intermarry with the Gentiles living in the area. But the Israelites, as they do many times, they disobeyed the commands of God and they intermarried with the locals that were there. And the generation that resulted were called the Samaritans. They were half Jewish, half Gentiles. And so because they were not fully Jewish, 
Jewish people, the people of God, the nation of Israel, rejected them as members of the people of God, partially because they were walking reminders of Israel's corporate disobedience. There was this entire generation that resulted from them disobeying the commands of God. And so they looked at these people of God, were filled with shame, and they rejected them. This Samaritan woman has been rejected by the people of God because of her race. I can't think of anything more that breaks the heart of God than people being kicked out of corporate worship, being said, you can't become members of the people of God. You cannot be incorporated into God's people because of your race. That's how the nation of Israel responded to Samaritans. But more than that, she's a woman. And in this day, that was not always welcome in Jewish culture. As a woman, even if she was a faithful Israelite, even if she was a Jew, she would only be welcome in the temple courts about three quarters of her adult life. About a quarter, 25% of her adult life, she was considered ceremonially unclean. And so as a Samaritan and as a woman, this woman has a lot of reasons not to inter- interact with Jewish men. I mean, Jewish people at the time didn't shop at the same uh, markets as Samaritans. They, they wouldn't go to the same temples. They didn't worship in the same temples as Samaritans. They wouldn't even drink from the same cup as a Samaritan. And here is a Jewish rabbi at a well asking a Samaritan woman for a drink of water from her water jar. And she's a little suspicious. <laughs> Let's be honest. There's no reason he should be asking for this, right? Culturally, this doesn't make a bit of sense. And so she responds this way in verse 9. <clears throat> the Samaritan woman said to him, um, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answers her in something that reads a little bit like a riddle. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus responds to her pushback by saying, there's something you don't know about me. You don't have me all figured out, but actually if you knew who I was, you you would respond. You would reciprocate the request and you would ask me for a drink of living water. And she says, "Um, excuse me, sir, but you have nothing to draw with in the well is deep, so where are you going to get this water? And then she says this, are you greater than our father Jacob? Knowing the racial history between these two people groups, between the Samaritans and the Jews, we know that this is a provocative question. He's pushing in on the cultural barriers between them. And she's saying, so are you greater than our common ancestor, Jacob, that you can get water for yourself without a bucket? She is testing him. She wants to see how far he will go in relating to her by showing their mutual relation. It's as if she's saying, hey, if you want to share this bucket with me, how about you admit to sharing a line of blood as well? Are you greater than our mutual father, Jacob? And he responds to her with compassion and says, whoever drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus refuses to sort of discuss down here. Jesus isn't just about breaking these cultural barriers, but Jesus is elevating the question again. He's returning to what sounds like a riddle. He's saying, I have something greater. There is living water that causes people never to thirst again. This is not a conversation about a bucket. 
but a conversation about living eternal water and everlasting life. And so the woman narrows her eyes, defiantly puts out her hands and says, show me. Give it up. Give me this water so that I don't have to come here and draw this water anymore. If you've ever heard about the Samaritan woman and the woman at the well, we know that she likely came to the well at noon because that's when women did not go to the well. It was the hottest point of the day. Those water jars were heavy. But I imagine that water jar carried a lot lighter than the words of other women. We are going to see a little bit about her history, a little bit about her place in the town, and why she chooses to come when nobody else is around. And so she's going to test him. She's like, go ahead and show me, because then I don't have to come here. I don't have to avoid the other women's. I don't, other women in the town, and they're whispering gossip, gossip about what I've done and what maybe I have done. And I could never come to the well again, so give me this everlasting water. And so Jesus says this to her, which to us is going to sound really harsh. Jesus says, go call your husband. Bring him here. That would have been customary for him to ask at the very beginning of their conversation. When he walks up to the well and wants a, and wants a drink of water, it would have been customary for him to say, call your husband. I'll discuss with him. I'll ask him to have you, I'll ask him to ask you to draw the water, and then I'll ask him for the cup, and I'll drink it. That would have been customary at the beginning. But he's saying, okay, you want to play by the rules? Call your husband. Knowing this, she doesn't have one. And that's how she responds. She confesses to him and sort of in a defensive posture. She says, I have no husband. And Jesus says to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. For you've had five, and the one you now have isn't even a credible sixth. When we hear this question, we think, oh. It's so harsh. It's so harsh, but what he's doing is pointing out her situation in the community. What is her story? Her story is that she is with a man now who is the sixth man that she's been with. It's as if Jesus is saying, you still want my water. You may not have a husband, but you still have a deep and abiding thirst for lasting eternal things. It's as if Jesus is saying, your bed has been full, but you are still so empty. Why don't you take me up on this offer of living water? With this reservoir, this shallow spring filled in her life, she has no reason to plumb the depths of his offer of living water. And so Jesus points to the place of her deepest pain and cultural shame. Ah, but she doesn't want to have it. The woman said to her, okay, sir, I perceive that maybe you're a prophet. <laughs> Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will we worship the Father. She says, okay, <laughs> I see your tricks. Um, I see that maybe you're a prophet. You know a couple things about me. So riddle me this. Where are we supposed to worship? Because Samaritan worship was considered completely obsolete by the Jews, they set up their own temple on Mount Gerizim, where we know the temple is in Jerusalem, but they weren't allowed in the Jerusalem. The Jews did not permit them to worship there, and so they set up their own temple. But the Jews considered Mount Gerizim temple to be completely illegitimate. And so the woman says, you tell me this, where should we worship? It's as if your question reminds me that I'm not right with God, but your race reminds me I can't be. So you tell me this, where should we worship? What should I do to be made right with God? If I can't worship on Mount Gerizim, if I can't worship in Jerusalem, you tell me what I should do. You're all about pointing out my flaws. You're all about pointing out my cultural shame. But what am I supposed to do about it? You tell me how to be made right with God. You tell me where I should worship. 
And Jesus says to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews, speaking of himself. Salvation is coming from the nation of Israel. But, Jesus says, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, great statement of faith, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. The woman says, I know. Your question reminds me I'm not right with God. Your race reminds me I can't be, but I do get it. Someday a Messiah is going to come, and he's going to make all of this right. And we can only imagine in her mind she's thinking of the whispered words of other women in the town, those who wondered about her sixth um, partner, those who wondered about all the husbands that she had had before, all the women that made her avoid coming to the well at the normal time of the day, all the women that made her slink through the shadows of the town at midday, coming to the well by herself. She says, I know, someday he's going to come and reveal all of this and more. The Messiah is going to come and all these things will be made known. Those words of others in the town will be revealed for what they are. The question of where to worship will finally be answered. I know that Messiah is coming. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I who speak to you am he. Jesus is saying, it's not about water, but a person. It's not about a place to worship, but a source to believe in. Jesus tells her, it's me. You want living water? It's me. You want a place to worship? Come to me. Jesus is saying, it's me. It's me. It's me. And to this woman, who has slinked through the town trying to avoid the gaze of others, to this woman who bears a ton of cultural shame, to this woman who has been racially discriminated against, to this woman who has not been welcomed in the temple in Jerusalem, who could not seek to be made right with God through the ritual regulations of the righteous law of God, to this woman, this Gentile Samaritan woman who is testing him at a well, is the first person that Jesus chooses to reveal his divinity. Think about all the towns that Jesus passed through between Judea and Galilee. Think of all the synagogues full of righteous religious leaders that he could have revealed his true identity to. Jesus hasn't even told his disciples that he is the Messiah in explicit terms. But to this woman at this well, to this woman with her brokenness and cultural shame, to this woman Jesus chooses to reveal his identity. And he says, it's me. Come to me. You want to worship, worship me. You want water, come to me. He reveals his divinity to her. And look at her response. Look down in verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. This woman who bore cultural shame who had been ostracized and abandoned, this woman with all of her baggage, we don't even know all of her baggage, we don't even know all of her story, but we know some of it. This woman with this story, Jesus chooses to reveal his identity to. And she is so much like you and I. 
with a whole story of messiness and brokenness that goes before us. But Christ has revealed his identity to us, sisters. He has shown us that he is life. He has shown us that he is living water. And whatever shallow bucket or stagnant source we have in our lives, he has called us to give up in exchange for the life of Jesus. He has called us into relationship with him that has changed our entire lives. And just like this woman, we have the opportunity to drop that bucket, go back to the people who whispered about maybe what all she had done. And she said, come and see. Could this be the Christ? Could this be the Messiah? And the text tells us that many came to him. This woman was the first evangelist that we see in Scripture who knew the deity of Christ and bore witness to him. And how did she do it? By making her whole life available to Jesus. She said, this is all my baggage. (laughs) Y'all have wondered about what all my baggage is. And she said, he told me everything I ever did. Could it be the Christ? And sisters, we are in some places. You may not be sitting there today saying, I want to be a Bible teacher. I want to stand with a microphone. I want to stand in front of people and proclaim the word of God. And maybe you are. Maybe that is where you are. And God will find a way. He will make that path known to you. But all of us have a story of, being, of the divinity of Christ being revealed to us, the living water of Christ being shown to us, and us being called to make our whole lives available to share the good news of the gospel with others. We do not have the luxury as Christians to be saved and then to sit back and let other people do the work of evangelism. We do not have permission in the word of God to be people who say, I want to be saved, but I don't want to be a part of kingdom work. I want to be a part of the kingdom, but I don't want to be a part of building it. We are called by scripture to be like the Samaritan woman, baggage and all, brokenness and all, to respond to the call of Christ and to use our stories as a platform to point people to Jesus. This woman didn't come back into town and say, so he told me this, and isn't that interesting? And he told me this about his life, isn't that interesting? She was not the end point. Christ was the end point. And so as you reflect on your life, as you reflect on the story that God has written for you, the story of your past, the story of your present, the story of your family, Open up your life to be available and used by God. Be like Becky, who said, just come over and be a part of the family. Be like Becky, who made her whole life available to the work of God that others might know the gospel. Be like Lisa, who gave up her time, who studied the word of God in a way that her children would see. Be like these women who made everything that they had available to the work of Christ. Because the truth is, The question isn't, are we teaching the Bible, but are we equipped to do it well? Are we equipped to share our life stories in such a way that compels others by the love of Christ, the glory of God in our life, and the hope that is found in Christ alone? Each of us are called to this. Each of us are compelled by the word of God to do this, and we have an example in the Samaritan woman of how we can do this to the glory of God. In our last workshop today, we are going to talk about what, how do we start stepping into sharing the good news with others? How do we use the scriptures? If we study them, how do we use them? As we learn about Christ, how do we share that with others? Because that is the knee-jerk reaction that God wants to develop in each of us, just like this woman. I learned about Christ, and now I'm going to share it. 
That is the knee-jerk reaction that we are to have as Christians. So we're going to talk about how to do that. But before we do, and before we break um, for lunch next, I believe, let's pray. Because I want to pray for us that we would be empowered and enabled to do this in our ordinary day-to-day lives in a way that gives testimony to who God is and builds others up in the gospel. So will you bow in prayer with me?